Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Anthony Mara at Carver County's Chanhassen Public Library. Anthony Mara's 2013 opus, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, takes place against a backdrop of occupation and insurgency in war-torn Chechnya. NPR called it one of the most accomplished and affecting books in a very long time. It was a contender for the National Book Award and won the author a number of awards and accolades including the National Book Critics Circle's inaugural John Leonard Prize for Emerging Authors. Mara is a frequent contributor to publications ranging from The Atlantic to Narrative Magazine and Make Magazine. His other honors to date include a Whiting Writers Award and the prestigious Pushcart Prize. Um, thank you so much for that, that uh, uh, beautiful introduction. It's, um, it's uh, a, a real pleasure to be here uh, with you all today, particularly since uh, I have roots in this, in this region. My, uh, my mother grew up in, uh, in St. Paul. Uh, my, my uncle Patrick, my uh, aunts Terry and Colleen were, were kind enough to, to come out here, and um, I just have a, a lot of, uh, of, of fond memories of running around um, embarrassing myself as a child in, in, in your wonderful state. <laughs> um, so I, uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit um, about how I came to, to write this book, um, a little bit of, of, of the background of this Chechen conflict that we still hear about today. If, if we looked at the uh, newspaper this morning, there was probably something about the Chechen connection to, these, uh, uh, to this murder of, of this Russian dissident um, last month, which I'm happy to, to get into later. Um, and uh, uh, a few stories, perhaps, of, of uh, my time traveling in, in the region. Um, but uh, but to, to start off with, why, why Chechnya? What is a, um, what's a good boy of, of Irish and Italian stock doing writing about a place like this? Um, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's a question my mother asks with some regularity. Um, and and it, uh, it began for me when I was, uh, when I was in college. I, um, I had always loved Russian, Russian literature. There's this, this uh, uh, scale to it. You know, if just finishing um, War and Peace is you know, a huge accomplishment, whether or not you like it or not. <laughs> um, um, and and I'd, always, I'd always loved uh, 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 the willingness of the great Russian writers to engage with these, um, you know, difficult moral and 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 political and philosophical questions, um, and so I decided I was going to I was going to study abroad in Saint Petersburg, Russia. I was a college student in Los Angeles at the time, um, 
the only problem was that the, the study abroad program required four semesters of college-level Russian, and I had taken zero. Um, <laughs> but I figured, how hard is it, really, to, <laughs> to learn Russian? Uh, pretty difficult, it, it, it turns out. Um, but I wanted to be uh, you know, a fiction writer, so I decided I would first practice my craft on my application form. Um, and I, uh, I ended up in, uh, in, in St. Petersburg in, in January. Um, it was about light for, uh, for maybe five hours at midday. Um, it was negative, you know, 20 degrees out. And I was uh, living with uh, a really, uh, uh, a very kind and, and, um, and hospitable uh, Russian mother and her two grown sons, um, both of whom were, were smokers. And uh, the mother was, was very kind and, and, and warm and, and welcoming and, and doting. And she, she worried that my, uh, my coddled Western respiratory system um, couldn't, couldn't handle the volume of her son's smoke. Um, so she, uh, uh, for reasons of, of public, public health, um, uh, banished them to the unventilated bathroom. And, and, and all of their smoking had to, had to take place in there. Um, the sons, of course, were none too pleased by, by this development. And, um, and uh, in protest, they set up shop in, in the bathroom from about uh, breakfast time until bedtime. And over the course of my months there, um, the, the living room gradually sort of uh, uh, immigrated towards the, the bathroom. By the time I left, there was an easy chair, a boom box, <laughs> set up in, in this bathroom. It looked uh, 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 a cross between an out-of-date disco and uh, the office of a pornographer who's fallen on tough times. Um, so uh, needless to say, I, I spent um, much of my time in St. Petersburg, one of the most beautiful cities on earth, um, searching for an unoccupied restroom. Um, and on my, my daily wanderings, uh, every, every few hours really, um, um, I, I would s sometimes cross paths with a uh, a group of military cadets from the Cadet Academy down, down the road. These were 15, 16, 17-year-old kids, and they would um, march up and down the block in military formation. And they wore these beautiful blue uh, uniforms, um, these peaked caps, you know, not, not a hair out of place. And on their walks, they would, um, they would sometimes pass by the local metro station. At rush hour, you would see other men um, a, a bit older than these, than these uh, teenagers um, who also wore uniforms um, congregating at, at this metro station. Um, their, their uniforms weren't nearly so clean, not nearly as well maintained. Some of them, um, uh, some of their trousers had been hemmed to accommodate uh, missing limbs. Um, and these were veterans of a conflict that these cadets might one day join. Um, and th there were these moments where you would see these cadets as they were marching past information, sort of look at look at these, at these veterans and then turn away. Um, and it just seemed like this extraordinary moment where the past and the future uh, uh, were looking at each other eye to eye. And I wanted to, to discover what it was that separated these two groups of, of young people besides, um, besides a few years and a few feet of asphalt. And the answer um, was Chechnya. And at the time, uh, for me, as is probably the case for, for, for many of us here in America, Chechnya was uh, a vague synonym for far-flung terror and poverty. Um, it, it didn't, um, you know, I, I doubt I could have found it on a map. Um, 
Um, but over the, the next you know, um, 10 years or so, um, I read and, and studied and became increasingly fascinated with, with this little region um, of, of southern Russia that, um, that in many ways, um, both uh, in Russia and in, in the world at large, we, we tend to, to ignore. Um, and as I was, uh, as I was, was studying um, uh, this area, uh, I became increasingly fascinated with these stories of ordinary civilians who would go to uh, sometimes extraordinary lengths to retain some sort of vestige of their humanity in these deeply inhumane times. Um, and around, um, around 2008 or so, 2009, um, I, I uh, I decided that I was going to try to find a novel that was, was set in this, in this region. You know, a, a good novel can be a, a tunnel that drops us straight through the center of the earth, and we emerge on the other side next to people we never otherwise know. And to my surprise, um, I couldn't find a novel that was set in contemporary Chechnya, either one that was written in English or one that had been translated into English um, from, from Russian. And, uh, so I came to, to write this book as, as a reader rather than as, as a writer. This was um, the kind of, of novel that I wanted to find on, on the, uh, the shelf at my local library, only, only it wasn't there quite yet. Um, I, uh, I think maybe we'll, we'll, we'll move back a, a little further into history to, to think about this, this uh, Russian-Chechen conflict. Um, it began uh, uh, centuries ago, about four centuries ago, when, um, uh, when the regime of Ivan the Terrible uh, uh, expanded the, the, the Russian Empire to include um, the, the Northern Caucasus in its territorial holdings. Now, uh, if, if, if a, a politician is, is nicknamed the Terrible, we know that, that you know, uh, probably, probably not uh, a lot of goodwill there. Um, and over the following, uh, the following 400 some years, um, there have been these, these periods of, of, of uh, peace and periods of, of violence. But throughout it all, this question of who has legitimate territorial sovereignty um, over this land? Is it, is it the, the ethnic Chechens, the, those uh, native to the, the Northern Caucasus, or is it, um, is it uh, the Russian Empire that, that expanded to, uh, to contain them? Um, and one of the, the most famous sort of flare-ups happened in the uh, 19th century. Um, this was uh, a, 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 a war that lasted for, for decades, and it was something that, that really captivated the great uh, Russian 19th century authors. Tolstoy, Pushkin, Lermontov, Alexander Dumas all traveled to the region during this, this time period um, uh, because they were fascinated with this, these, these sort of romanticized, um, uh, warriors, religious warriors, who were taking on you know, the might of the Russian Empire. And the person who, who um, interested them most of all was a man named Imam Shamil. Imam Shamil um, wanted to create a trans-Caucasian caliphate. Again, we only need to, to look at, at today's newspaper to see how this might have contemporary resonance. And Imam Shamil was, uh, was a brutal but a very cunning man. He, um, he would put the, horse, the horseshoes on his horses backwards so that uh, if Russian troops came across his tracks, they would follow them in the wrong direction. And it was, it was little, little tactics like this that allowed him uh, to keep a million-man Russian army on its heels for the, uh, 
uh, for the better part of, of three decades with only um, a few thousand soldiers of, of his own. And he, um, he, he had this life that, that reads like something we, we might have, have, have found in uh, you know, an Alexander Dumas novel. He, um, he, uh, he had a, an eight-year-old son, his firstborn son, um, who was kidnapped by the Russians um, and was taken to, uh, to the Tsar's court in St. Petersburg. And in St. Petersburg, the son was raised as something like a foster son to the Tsar. And um, over the course of 20-some years, the son came to uh, become completely russified. He, he forgot his native language. He came to believe that if only his father, you know, back, back in the, the Caucasus, um, could see how wonderful Russian art and culture and, and, and science was, this whole, this whole you know, uh, conflict would be, would be uh, uh, resolved quite quickly. Uh, he even joined the very army his father was fighting against. And along the way, he, he fell in love with a Georgian princess. We know this isn't going to end well as soon as a Georgian princess <laughs> pops on the scene. Um, for, for this entire period, Imam Shamil, back in, in southern Russia, was going around kidnapping members of the uh, Russian aristocracy. He was trying to find someone of a high enough social standing that he could swap hostages with the Tsar for his son. And eventually, he captures this Georgian princess. Back in St. Petersburg, the, czar goes to, the, the son goes to the Tsar and says, you know, uh, she's the love of my life. Um, um, and here we're getting a bit into, into the, the myth. Um, she's the love of my life, Tsar. You know, please cut me a break. Um, let me go back and, and, and switch positions with her. And the Tsar thinks on it and says, you know, I love you like a son. Uh, uh, if this is what you want, we'll do it. And so supposedly the, the son and the Georgian princess cross paths on this, on this field in, in southern Russia as, as the, the, the two sides exchanged hostages. And that was the last they ever saw of each other. And, um, and uh, the son returned to a, uh, a region that he no longer um, remembered to a family he could no longer communicate with from the splendor of, of the, the Petersburg palaces to um, you know, to very primitive uh, conditions back home. And, and he died shortly after that. Um, but he was right about his father. A few years after this, his father, um, Imam Shamil, surrendered. And he, um, he was installed in, in a dacha in, in southern Russia. Um, back then, if you, you know, if you led an army, um, uh, you got sort of put in retirement rather than, um, rather than uh, you know, going to prison or, or being killed. And he and, he and the Tsar became, um, became pen pals. And they uh, would write these adoring letters, you know, um, sort, of, sort of forgiving each other, who could remember who started this whole thing. And, uh, and Imam Shamil became sort of fascinated with Western trinkets. Um, uh, you know, the Tsar would send him China patterns and whatnot. Um, and this, th that last part they usually don't, don't, don't tell uh, uh, in, in, in Chechnya. Um, but but he, he's a figure who, who sort of became this um, uh, an equivalent of, of maybe Davy Crockett and George Washington, um, this, this sort of foundation figure, um, who even now, in, in these most recent wars in the 90s, the leader of the, of the uh, insurgency was a man named Shamil Basayev. And he took that name, Shamil. Um, it was actually the name he was given at, at birth, but he, he tried to style himself as the second coming of, Emil, uh, of, of uh, Imam Shamil, and that he was going to unite the Caucasus in this, in this, um, in this caliphate. Um, we move forward a, a, a century or so uh, to World War II. Um, 
uh, among the many atrocities of this, of this time period, one that often gets overlooked is, is the deportation of, of, of Chechens. The entire, um, the entire uh, uh, ethnic population of Chechnya was rounded up in Lend-Lease Studebaker trucks in February of, of uh, 1944. And they were, with, over the course of a week, shipped to uh, Kazakhstan, Siberia, and Kyrgyzstan, something, um, uh, an estimate of, of around a third of the population uh, died uh, during, this, during this period. And it was not until, um, until 1956 that they were allowed to return. And they returned to a country that was now filled with Russians. Um, there were Russians in, in their homes, in, in their schools. Um, the, the, the Chechen graveyards of, of their ancestors, many of them had been, digged up, had, had been dug up, and the tombstones were used to pave roads. And so this, this only adds to this you know, long-standing historical um, uh, animosity between, between these, these two groups. Um, and yet there is this, this persistent um, um, idea that that uh, you know the the the, uh, uh, the Chechen people were 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 stalwart and were you know un unbending, um, and it's it's a myth um, um, that I think both both sides of this conflict like to like to play up in in um, in the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote that that uh, the Chechens were the only ethnicity that the guards were afraid of. Um, um, and and moving moving uh, into uh, in, in, into the present uh, uh, to to this week, um, it was recently announced that um, that in this in this case of the uh, of the Nemtsov uh, murder, um, a group of, of Chechens have, have been have been arrested, and this goes back to this um, uh, to this this question of of who's running Chechnya today. Um, after these, these wars in, in the, the 1990s and early 2000s, um, militarily, uh, the Russians more or less won. And um, they uh, installed a man named Kadyrov, first, first a father and now his son, Ramzan Kadyrov, as, uh, as president. And Kadyrov uh, is a former warlord and rebel himself. And he is, he's bragged that he has been able to create an independent Chechnya, not by... Um, not by uh, fighting Moscow, but by milking it. And uh, so today, the entire city of Grozny is rebuilt on, on uh, Russian subsidies. But there's th this um, uh, long-standing uh, question of, of sort of who's, who's, who's in the driver's seat. Is, is, is Chechnya part of Russia, or is it its own um, independent uh, little fiefdom? And the question, and I think the answer is, is both. Um, um, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov has sort of proven that he's the only force able to, to stabilize this very divisive region um, through you know, really uh, brutal um, uh, techniques. Uh, he has you know, a, a horrific human, human rights uh, uh, record. There have been thousands who've been uh, disappeared under his, his watch. Um, the, the laws concerning um, uh, female, uh, female um, uh, sort of uh, the, the virtue campaign, he, he calls it, uh, which is this attempt to bring sort of a, a more traditional Sharia-based um, laws to, to, to Chechnya, including having, uh, requiring women to wear uh, hijabs in public places, um, completely flouts the, the Russian constitution. Um, and yet, it's the law, the law of the land there. Um, 
And in, 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 this, in this recent uh, uh, Nemtsov um, uh, murder, the, uh, the, the ringleader um, was one of the former um, uh, leaders of, of Kidirov's personal sort of security um, detail. Um, and there's this long-standing rift between Kadyrov and the FSB, the, 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 uh, uh, the heirs to the, the KGB, um, and, and various uh, uh, experts in, in the field think that, that, this, that this, uh, this, this murder and, and, and it's, it's uh, the way the, the prosecution is, is uh, likely to, sh to, to uh, uh, shake out is, is a uh, attempt for the FSB to um, to try to counter the growing power of, of Kadyrov. There was uh, a story in the, in the New York Times today about, about uh, Kadyrov's forces in Chechnya wanting to go into the FSB headquarters, and the FSB said no. And so uh, in response, Kadyrov's forces welded shut all of the doors, um, <laughs> exiting the building, <laughs> and, and until, until some folks at the Kremlin, Kremlin uh, became, became involved. Um, I, I, I myself visited uh, Chechnya a, a couple of, of, of years ago. Um, it was towards the, the end of writing this novel. Um, I, when I started writing, it was still technically a, a zone of counterterrorism operations, um, which is uh, uh, sort of a, a euphemism for a war zone. And um, it wasn't until I was nearly finished that, that I was able to, to go. Um, and this was, had been a place that I'd been you know, reading about and, and writing about and studying for, um, for a few years then. And, um, and, you know, I just felt in my bones I, I, I had to go. I'd been talking to, um, to Chechens in America um, and, and um, had to make it happen. Um, so I went to Orbit um, and, and typed in, you know, um, San Francisco airport to Grozny um, and, and nothing came up. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's a little tricky, tricky to get there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, 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 my, in, my, in my attempts to, um, to, to sort of find, uh, find a way there, I came across the very first uh, tour guide in, in Grozny. Um, and I found her on, on Twitter. And uh, her, her website in Russian was, was, was quite, quite elegant. It's, it's not a part of the world known for the elegance of, of, of their websites. Um, but it was, it was beautiful um, until you put it into Google Translate. And then it became a website selling knockoff prescription drugs, um, and so I wasn't uh, I wasn't entirely sure what I was was getting myself into, but I, I ended up um, in uh, uh, getting myself to, to Grozny, and, and she met me at the airport. I had signed up for um, for what was uh, called the Seven Wonders of, of Chechnya tour. Um, I was the only the only uh, uh, tourist on, on on this particular particular tour. Um, and uh, she, she met me at, at uh, Grozny Airport, and um, you know, I wasn't entirely sure if, if there'd be uh, 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 boxes of, of knockoff Lipitor in, 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 in the trunk of the car, um, but, but it was, it was, uh, she, she was a, a really wonderful guide and, and, and ended up uh, uh, introducing me to, to a lot of, of folks there, um, in addition to, to some people that, that I already knew. Um, and if, we're, if you were to, to Google uh, Grozny, uh, chances are the images you would see uh, would be these sort of World War II-like ruins, just, just complete devastation. And 
Um, if you drive to Grozny today, it's, it's, it's entirely rebuilt. Um, Kadyrov, the, the president, has, has commented that, that he wants to turn um, Chechnya into the Dubai of the Caucasus. Um, and sort of in, in line with that image, there are, are multiple uh, uh, skyscrapers. There, there are these five central skyscrapers. Um, there are these uh, you know, quite, quite beautiful um, boulevards. Um, uh, the city is, 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 is so sort of fully rebuilt that it doesn't feel re rebuilt, but rather a new city simply transplanted on, on the ruins of, of its, of its uh, predecessor. Um, and as I, was, uh, as I was, was, was traveling around for, for a, a few weeks there, um, I, was, I was amazed at, to see how, um, despite this, this beautiful facade, you know, that, that um, and, 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 and there really is something to that, the, the, the fact that, um, that this place that ten, 10 years ago looked like Stalingrad in 1943, today looks, um, looks like, you know, a, a very clean and beautiful city. Um, seeing just beneath the surface the way that, that this war still, um, still, uh, still rages inside um, you know, the hearts and, and minds of, of, of the population. Um, we went, I went uh, to this, uh, this uh, Tolstoy Museum that was uh, 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 in, in northern Chechnya, a town called Starogladovskaya. Tolstoy, um, as I mentioned, he came to, to, to Chechnya in, in, in the 1850s. He had accrued some gambling debts in, in Moscow and figured that his, his debtors wouldn't, um, his, his creditors wouldn't follow him down to, to Chechnya. And, um, and this, is, this is where he began writing his, his very first book, Childhood. And it's a region he returns to in his final book, Haji Murad. Um, so the, the, uh, the, the career of, of one of the great writers in, in, in human history is bookended by, by Chechnya. And um, over the course of, of, of my time there, I would often ask people you know, who, who their favorite uh, uh, novelist was. And probably nine times out of 10, the answer would be, would be Tolstoy. Um, and if, if you think that, that um, you know, a, a, a large amount of, of the, the Chechen identity is, is, is based on an aversion to all things Russian, um, the fact that Russia's greatest you know, cultural figure would be so revered um, in, in this area strikes one as, as, as a little odd. Um, uh, but there's this, this museum in, in Starogladovskaya, and it was the only museum to remain open during both of these, of these wars in the 90s and, and early 2000s. And it was, it was able to remain so because the curator would sit at the front door with a shotgun. And he would, uh, he would ward off um, any, any non-literary enthusiasts. <laughs> you all would be welcome. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but I wanted to see it for, for, for myself. He, and and so, so, so I went and he met me you know, at the front door. He, he, he did not have a shotgun. Um, and uh, and I, I wanted to see what it was that this museum had. Was it, was it a, um, um, a, uh, you know, a, a quill that Tolstoy had, had used to, to write some famous passage? Was it a stack of salacious love letters? What was it that this museum um, laid claim to that uh, was worth preserving uh, to, to su such an ex in, in, in such a, a um, difficult climate? W why had this uh, curator put his life and the life, lives of his family members in danger by maintaining a museum in a war zone. And um, he led me into the first room and, and, and there was nothing there. And he led me into the second room and there was, was nothing there either. 
Um, there's nothing in the third room. Um, it, was, it was an empty building. Um, and rather than, rather than show you know, manuscript pages or, um, or, or you know, feathery quills, he instead simply told stories about Tolstoy's life, about Tolstoy's books, about how, um, how Tolstoy's uh, novels had, had, um, had given him hope in this incredibly hopeless uh, environment. Um, how you know, Tolstoy had, had helped him um, uh, figure out how to live a good life at, at a time when the moral, uh, the moral compass was, was uh, recalibrated to point purely towards survival. And, and it quickly became um, apparent that in this, uh, in this city, um, in, this, in this, this region where, um, um, excuse me, in, 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 this, in this museum, that had nothing that Tolstoy ever actually touched, that was on a plot of land that Tolstoy never actually stepped on, um, that, that the, this museum instead um, um, was this man, um, and that, that he was the, the exhibition, um, and that, that by preserving this place where these, these, um, these stories could be t told, where, where the legacy of, of Tolstoy's um, uh, works could be honored, he was in, in some way perhaps um, uh, preserving some part of himself from the depredations of, of the war that, that surrounded him. And, and these, these, these sort of surreal acts of, of remembrance um, sort of uh, popped up uh, repeatedly. Um, I, I visited this, uh, this uh, uh, town called Urus Martan, and um, a man there had decided to build uh, a replica of his destroyed childhood village, a life-size replica in this lot that extended from his house. And he began working on it in, in the, the early 90s. And so while his, his, his friends and neighbors were going to the mountains to fight the Russians, he would go to the mountains to, uh, to quarry stone. And he created this, um, you know, dozens of, or maybe not dozens, maybe one dozen, uh, a series of, of three-story tall stone watchtowers like those that once studded um, the highlands. He, he built a stable and, and, and when he showed it to me, he said, this is, this is where I was born. Um, nobody lives in this, in this village. It's populated only by his ghosts. And yet, um, by, by creating something while everything else uh, surrounding him was being destroyed, um, um, I think it, it, it gave him uh, uh, perhaps a, a, uh, uh, a small measure of the same, the same hope that, that uh, the, the curator at the, the Tolstoy Museum um, had found. And it, these were the kinds of, of characters that I, that I wanted, the, the, the kind of, kinds of people that I wanted to embody um, in this book. Um, uh, it's a novel set against the, the backdrop of war, but it's not a war novel. It's, it's about surgeons rather than soldiers. Um, there is, is not really any sort of battle uh, scene in, in, the entire, in the entire novel. It's about how do people um, like you, like me, like my mom, like my relatives, people who are not overly political, not overly religious, um, how do we go about um, building um, and, and, and maintaining some sort of, of life that, that, that has the values that, um, that we want to live by in, in, in a world um, where everything is falling, where everything is, is collapsing. Um, those were the stories that, um, that really seemed um, the, most, the most vital, the most, um, the most necessary to tell. Um, 
I, I think uh, I'll, I'll maybe uh, uh, talk a little bit about, about book clubs um, um, for, for a few minutes before, before taking any, any questions. Um, um, we're, we're here, this is, this, is called, uh, this is called Club Book. Um, and and uh, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't until, until recently, uh, with, with an experience that I had with, with, this, with this, this novel after pub publishing it, um, that I really came to, to believe um, that book clubs um, have not only have the, 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 I mean, they're great for writers, they're great for readers, um, but they're really great for our communities in ways that perhaps we don't quite necessarily always, um, always see. Um, so so uh, for a, a little bit of a, a, a preface, one of the, the, the sources I used when I was writing this book was, um, was a, a memoir called The Oath by um, a man named Hassan Bayev. And he, um, he, he was a surgeon in, in Chechnya. And he has lived really just an extraordinary life. He, um, he was born outside of Grozny and he went to medical school in Siberia. And in Siberia, he couldn't afford both tuition and a place to live. So he uh, spent uh, a, a long while living in the train station while he was in medical school. Until um, the, the, the school found out that he's, he, he was this sort of world-class um, wrestler. Um, and they, they put him on the, the wrestling team and gave him an apartment. So, so he, he didn't have to stay in the, in the train station for too long. So after, after he graduated from medical school, he wanted to go into the most remunerative um, field of medicine that he could find, and, and he decided that was going to be plastic surgery. So he became um, a cosmetic surgeon, and, and he was you know, doing, doing um, uh, nose jobs and, and, and tummy tucks and whatnot, um, uh, until the outbreak of this, of this first war in 1994, at which point he found himself the only, um, the only person with surgical experience in this, in this village of, of thousands. And so he had to teach himself trauma surgery. And he opened a, a, uh, uh, he opened a hospital in his, in his basement. Um, and he, he, he really um, is, is you know, one of the few heroes that, um, that, uh, that have, have come out of this war, I think. He, um, he, he decided that he was going to abide um, by, by the oath he pledged uh, when he got his medical degree, that he was going to to, um, he was going to treat anybody who came to his door regardless of, of ethnic, military, or political affiliation. And this meant that uh, on one day he might be saving the lives of, of uh, a bunch of Russian privates who, who had been brought into his clinic. Um, on, on another day he might, um, he might be saving the life of a man like uh, Shamil Basayev, the head of the, uh, of the insurgency. And so for this reason, he was wanted by both sides of the conflict, um, both the Russian, um, the, the Russian military service and um, uh, the Chechen insurgency had bounties out on him at the same time. Um, he, uh, he, he sort of had this superhuman ability um, to, uh, to amputate. His, his record was 67 consecutive amputations. Um, in a single in a single forty eight hour stretch, um, he he designed this um, this uh, this transtibial um, uh, leg amputation um, that would usually take you know several hours in, in a hospital and and 
and he said that he could, he could do it in half an hour um, using carpentry tools. Um, and, and, you know, this, this is a guy with, with a medical degree. Many of his colleagues fled to the West, fled north to Russia, and, and he, stayed, he stayed there because this was how he was able to, um, to live, that, that, that he, had to, he had to do what he could. And he, he ended up saving, um, you know, uh, hundreds if not thousands of, of, of people. Um, so he was, in, in this memoir, he's, he's describing all of this. Um, um, I, was, I was supposed to stay with him when I, when I went to Chechnya, and, and there was a crossed wire, and uh, we weren't able to meet up. I think I'm going to meet, uh, I'm going back to Chechnya in, in, in a few months, so I'll, I'll, I think I'll see him then. But in this memoir, he, um, he describes his two, his two nephews who helped him out in the hospital, but who also um, smuggled videotape um, across the border for Reuters. They would put these, these video cassettes that depicted um, various Russian atrocities um, into, uh, into cigarette um, packs, and they would hide it in these microbuses that would go um, over the border. And one, one was named uh, Ali, and Ali was sort of his, his, um, his second in command in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the, the surgery theater. He had been a, a student um, of medicine before the wars. Um, and so the, the, the Russian, um, uh, military wanted to get their hands not only on this surgeon, Kassan, but also on his, uh, also on his two, two nephews, Ali and his brother. So eventually they, they, they did ca uh, uh, capture um, Ali. And Ali was brought to, um, brought to a detention facility, much like um, the landfill, which is depicted in, in the novel. He was, uh, he was tortured, um, and uh, he was later shot alongside his brother. And his, his brother died, but Ali lived. Um, he was able to uh, escape to Moscow using the passport um, of, of a dead man. Um, and that's sort of where, where the memoir leaves him. Um, so uh, last June, I was in Nantucket. Um, um, and I was, I was speaking to, to a group of readers uh, like you. And afterwards, um, a woman with, with a Russian accent came up to me. And she said, um, she said that she was reading the novel in her book club. Um, and she said that in, in the acknowledgments, I had, I had said something nice about her uncle-in-law. And I asked who her, her uncle-in-law was. And she said, Hassan Bayev, uh, this, this surgeon. And I asked who she was married to. And she said, his nephew, Ali. <laughs> and you know, my, my jaw nearly, nearly hit my knees. <laughs> um, uh, this. Uh, this this uh, this woman had been had been married to, to Ali for, for years. They, they, they have they have a, a four year old daughter, and um, she invited me over to her, her house that evening um, to to uh, to hang out with Ali. And as as a novelist, there's nothing quite as exciting and absolutely terrifying as as meeting somebody that that literally helped make your book. Somebody that that could have walked out of its pages. Um, you know the. Uh, the, the, the best definition of whether or not a novel is, is successful, I think, is whether or not a character, were they to walk into a bookstore, recognize themselves um, and, and, and believe that, they, that their experience had been honestly portrayed. And of course, that's an impossible measure because characters can't walk um, out of novels and into bookstores or libraries. Um, but this is about as close as, as, as I could come. Um, and so I went over there, I was terrified, you know, um, um, and, and excited all at the same time. And um, Ali is, is also, like his uncle, um, um, a martial arts 
expert. He's got you know uh, uh, multiple black belts in various disciplines. Um, um, and he met me at the door. He's about you know six foot four. Um, just just he looks terrifying. <laughs> And, and he, he you know, just had a huge smile and gave me a, a big bear hug. And, and for, for hours, we, we, um, um, he was telling me stories about, about his life um, during the wars and after. Um, and uh, and this, is, uh, this is a person who, who, who came from, a, um, he came from, from a, a village in which 80% of freestanding structures had been demolished. And now he lives in Nantucket, and he builds homes for a living. That's his, that's his job. Um, he's married to a Russian woman, which, which he couldn't have done back home. That, that, that wouldn't have been, you, you couldn't do that. Um, and and they, they met, they met in, in, in uh, Massachusetts, and they have, they have a, a, you know, this, this beautiful little, little kid. Um, he's, he's, he's been living there for, for years, um, building houses. And throughout the novel, there are these little moments where, um, where the narrator sort of peeks into the, into the future and gives these sort of projected uh, uh, possible futures for various characters. Um, and at, at various times when I was writing it, um, you know, I, would sh I would show the book to people, and, and, and you know, now and then some, some, some people would say that, that you know, this isn't realistic or, or this is sort of breaking you know, the narrative uh, illusion or, or what have you, but I always felt like that it was that I wanted to have these moments of light where, where these most of these projected futures are are happy, um, um, and I felt like the book needed some degree of of, of optimism of generosity these these moments where um, where we see something better happening where we see hope for these characters and meeting Ali who was sort of living this kind of a future um, um, it made me it, it it, it was, you know, uh, it was, it was uh, uh, a very, a very uh, poignant moment. Um, but he, he, we were talking about, about, about book clubs. His, his wife is, is, in, is in a book club. And, and um, one of the things he, he said was, you know, he was the only Chechen refugee on Nantucket. Perhaps not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and he said, however, that, that uh, a number of book clubs there had taken up, up this novel. And so that all of a sudden, this, this experience, which had been so unique to him, and which, which nobody else really um, had any access to or had any interest in, um, was, was, now, um, was now perhaps more, more widely um, understood. Um, and, and I think that, that places like this, rooms like this, readers like you, um, simply by, by being here, um, um, by, by reading books that you know perhaps take take you a little outside of your um, of your comfort zone, I think it can have effects that um, on people that perhaps you don't even know um, in ways that um, that uh, that are quite uh, are quite powerful. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Anthony Mara and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a man wondering how Mara's book was received in Chechnya. Well, it's... it's uh... 
from, from those that I've heard, um, which is, I think, a very self-selecting uh, group, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's been positive. You know, um, um, uh, Ali and, and his family have, have all read the novel and, and, and spoken, spoken highly of it. Um, I think there's, there's more a sense of, of sort of uh, bemused bewilderment that, <laughs> that this uh, guy from California is, is writing about it, but um, so much of, of, the, uh, of the, um, the presentation um, of, of Chechnya and Chechens within Western um, uh, entertainment and, 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 and culture has, has generally been rather negative. Um, and so particularly coming, you know, this was published um, three days, excuse me, three weeks after the Boston Marathon bombings when Chechnya was again in, in the news um, in, in again a very negative light. Um, I think that um, that there was uh, a sense of, of of relief, maybe that that at least in in this context, in this particular book, a more nuanced view was was um, was being presented. Our next audience member notes that Mara attended the prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop. She asked what that experience was like. Um, it, it it was. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, it, it, it was something. <laughs> um, I, um, I, uh, y you go there and, and they sort of have this this ranking system where everybody is. It, it's this sort of rather competitive environment, and you sort of know what everybody, what the the faculty thinks of you based on on um, what sort of of teaching package you get. You know, some people the the the, the stars. Um, would would you know they wouldn't have to teach at all they would just they would just be given given money, um, um, the 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 stars of the of the you know slightly lower firmament um, would uh, would be given some sort of swanky you know creative writing class that met once a week on like a Thursday at two in the afternoon. Um, I taught uh, I taught uh, freshman rhetoric at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Just to you know, uh, give a sense of where I was in the totem pole, um, um, but but it was actually really really wonderful in, in that it, it sort of lit this this fire in me, um, and that's where I began working on on this novel, and I um, um, it, it it sort of forced me to become very disciplined, I think, um, because you are surrounded by all of these very talented, very ambitious, very insecure people. Um, <laughs> Um, and and uh, and I think um, th that that sort of environment for me was was uh, was, was very productive. While I was um, while I was there, I, I, I decided that I had to set this daily word count um, uh, for uh, for writing this book. And my goal was to write a thousand words every day. And I had this big um, this big sort of log um, word count log on my. Um, uh, on the wall over my desk, and on the days that I would would write um, over a thousand words, I'd mark it down in black ink, and if it was under a thousand, I would I would mark it down in in red ink. And um, I come from from a Catholic family, um, so so shame has been a large part of my <laughs> of my experience. Um, and I, I was finally able to put it to, to productive use there. Um, but but I think that. Um, that being in, in an environment where you're surrounded by, by just all of these really incredible um, writers um, um, is, is both daunting and, and, and ins inspiring in its own way. While, while, I, was, uh, while I was there, um, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was there with Eleanor Catton, 
um, who wrote, wrote the Luminaries, um, um, uh, which uh, uh, was, is a really beautiful book I would, I would recommend. Um, and Ayanna Mathis was in my class um, as well. She wrote The Twelve, Twelve Tribes of Hattie. Um, um, so, so, you know, and that was just, just a few years ago. Um, um, uh, so no, it's, 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 it's a great place, and it was wonderful to, to live in the Midwest. This audience member wonders at what point Anthony Mara knew he wanted to write for a living. Yeah, I, I knew early on that I wanted to be a writer. Well, um, I, I, I suppose it was, it was when I was uh, maybe 18 years old or so was, was when I figured it out. I, before that, I'd, I'd wanted to be, um, uh, I'd always loved science, and, and you know, I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, at various points, I remember I was a little kid, um, and I told my parents that I wanted to be a, a molecular biologist, um, and and had no idea what that was. It just sounded kind of kind of cool, um, and uh, um, you know I wanted to be a marine biologist at other times. Um, but you have to you have to pass sophomore year chemistry before they give you the keys to the the keys to the submarine. Um, and I, I uh, after I graduated high school, I, I, I took a year off and, and was, um, was living at home. Um, and all of my friends had gone to college, and I, um, I went, uh, I was just um, sort of uh, working this retail position. Um, and so I decided that I was going to take a, uh, a creative writing class at this local um, community center. And um, it, was, it was geared toward, uh, toward retirees. Um, and so I was, I was the youngest person in this class by uh, a generation or two. Um, and I remember it just being an enormous amount of fun, um, that you could just make up stories, um, and, and it, it was vaguely, um, you know, academic, um, that, 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 that some people mistook it for, for, you know, being intellectual in some way. <laughs> Um, and I remember there was, you know, every day we, we or every week we would come in and we'd sort of pass around our stories and you'd always go around and you'd say something nice about, about you know, no, no matter how bad it was, you'd say something nice, you know, great font. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I remember there was this, this elderly gentleman um, who when my, when, when my story uh, came up, um, everybody, you know, was, was congratulating me on my font choice, and um, and he uh, he sort of leaned back in his in his chair um, and uh, and said, I, I believe if you can't say anything nice, you shouldn't say anything at all. <laughs> and he proceeded to say nothing. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and and and. Um, and I suppose I've been trying to, to live up to that man's expectations <laughs> ever since. Um, but, but no, I, I, I studied uh, English and creative writing in, in college. And, and um, even uh, I, I think it was, it was starting that, um, around that, that time when I was, when I was 18 and, and took this creative writing class where I would try to write every day and, and keep this, this daily log. Um, um, it was, at the time, I wasn't using the different inks. My, my, my OCD was under control. Um, um, but, uh, but I tried to, to make writing just part of my daily routine, where like every day you would, you would spend some time sort of with, with your, um, you know, leaving your fingerprints on, on whatever this was you were working on. And um, I, I, I suppose I sort of disqualified myself from, from any other work. Um, I, I, uh, uh, I, I didn't, 
I, I didn't have a different uh, a double major or no minor or anything. I had no meaningful experience whatsoever. Um, you know, I, I, I finished college sort of right as the economy and everything was, was uh, collapsing um, and, uh, and sort of thought um, I'll, 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 I'll weather it out in, in, in an MFA program. Um, and and uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's sort of how it came, came about. This question focuses on Mara's writing process. What character came first when writing a constellation of vital phenomena, and how did he arrive at the decision to use an omniscient point of view? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's a great question, and, and it was actually um, this, omniscient, this omniscient voice um, was a result of, of this retyping. Um, um, sort of, I, 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 I teach, I teach uh, these, these undergrads, and, and sort of I tell them on the first day, you know, retype, that's sort of, that's all I really know. Um, you can, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you're free to drop the class now. Um, um, I, I, uh, the fourth time through this, this retyping thing, um, where uh, not only was I um, trying to write a thousand words a day, but then once I had finished the first draft, I printed it all out and started retyping it from the beginning. Um, which I think is a way of, of, of feeling, of, of returning to whatever you know, creative um, uh, space the story first emerged from. It forces you to slow down your, um, your reading of a book to such a glacial pace that you really have to weigh each word. And um, the real benefit, though, is that, is that you get bored. You, you, you get bored retyping you know, the same sentence multiple times. And so, um, you know, boredom uh, is, 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 uh, is, is, is the mother of, of, of invention to some extent, I think, where, um, where you're, you're trying to find different ways of telling the same story. Um, and so it was the fourth time retyping the novel that, um, that, uh, that I came upon the idea of this, of this omniscient voice. Up to that point, it had been a very close third person, so we only saw what one character saw, we only thought, uh, thought what one character thought um, per chapter. And it was early on in this, in this retyping of, of the fourth, uh, the fourth uh, draft where um, I just sort of veered into the mind of this minor character. It was, it was in the opening chapter, a soldier um, who had, you know, he's only in the, in the book for the space of, of a paragraph. He has no real, um, no real presence and sort of just said a, a sentence about his, his, his backstory and, and about his future. And I just remember it feeling like this, this big bang, where all of a sudden the book could be much more um, inclusive and, and, and much, much larger, uh, where it could maybe be the kind of novel in which there were no minor characters, where every, every character get their, gets their sentence in the spotlight. Um, as for which, which character came to me first, I think it was, it was, it was uh, probably Sonia. Um, um, I, was, uh, I was visiting my, my, my folks um, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, I, I can't remember how long ago it was, um, but uh, I was, uh, my dad asked me to drop off a, a job application for him, and um, I was on the metro, and I remember just, just sort of thinking, having this, this, this sort of image of, of a woman waking up on a hospital bed, but she isn't injured. Um, she's not sick. Um, she just fell asleep there. And it was sort of that, that was sort of this central idea, and, and um, the entire book was sort of built on, on, on these what if questions. What if this happens? Or, 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 or you know, maybe, maybe this, th this is the reason for that. Um, and sort of all of my notes either begin with, with what if or maybe. Um, and, and 
and it was that initial question, you know, why is, uh, uh, why is she there? Um, um, what, what is this woman doing, you know, asleep on this hospital bed? And, and I ended up, you know, um, later that evening sort of just writing this little, this little sketch of, of, of a woman who wakes up not because she's, um, not because she's, she's injured or, or, or uh, a patient, but because she's, she's a surgeon and she's living in this hospital and she walks out into the, the corridor and there's this man and, and a little girl, neither of whom she recognizes, who are asking after her. And that was sort of um, where the entire, the entire novel came from. This audience member notices that Mara often uses the phrase power of story. She wonders if he can expand on this and describe how it relates to today's society. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's um, this, this ter the, the, the term narrative, you know, used to only be applied to, to books and movies. And now you turn on CNN and everyone's talking about the narrative, you know, shaping the narrative. Sort of reality is now this, this grand story that is being told and it's, you know, whose point of view. So sort of you, you can apply the, the tools of a writer to, um, to, to the way that, that, that we sort of understand how power is, is routed through our political system and, and, and all of that, and, um, w which is a bit creepy. You know, the, the idea that, that facts, don't, facts are only um, given weight um, by how they're, they're presented rather than, than how they, they are. Your question, I think, is a bit above my, my, my pay grade. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, I, I think there's, there's all sorts of reasons that, that, that we, we turn to, to, to literature, um, you know, uh, for escapism, um, to, to entertain ourselves, um, um, uh, uh, any number of, of, of reasons. I think uh, recently there's been this, um, this uh, a number of essays written about how, how we read in order to expand our empathy. Which, which I really like, but at the same time, it kind of feels like, like a teenager telling his mom, you know, I'm playing video games because it, it improves my hand-eye coordination. Like, like that's, that's why I'm doing it. Um, um, but I think, I think there is, there's truth to that, 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 um, that as, soon as, as soon as we sort of walk a mile in another person's shoes, I think it becomes, it becomes difficult for us to then um, generalize about that specific person. Um, and so the... the uh, it, the, the gift of, of literature, I think, is that it does allow us to, to inhabit you know, the mind and the heart of people who are incredibly different from us. Um, and, and I'd like to believe that you know, uh, a society in which the population is, is well-educated in the stories of others, in, in which um, people are well-educated in, in empathy, would be you know, a, a kinder, more generous um, place. Um, that said, you know, Stalin himself was, was a poet um, um, before he turned to politics. You know, Goebbels um, was a huge Dostoevsky fan. So I think the idea that, 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 that um, you know, we're all going to be redeemed through art is, is, is a flawed one, maybe. Um, but uh, but it's, it's, it's nice to, to think so, nonetheless, maybe. Our last question of the night comes from a man wondering what Anthony Mara is working on now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually just finishing up um, edits on a, a short story collection that's that's uh, set in in, in Russia and, and Chechnya again, and sort of has um, bits and pieces that I wanted to um, weave into this novel, but but what was was unable to. And, and this is sort of um, my, my final hurrah on, on Eastern Eastern Europe after this. Um, um, I think 
we'll be moving fictionally to someplace warmer um, <laughs> where we can go on some nice research trips. <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much for, for coming out. Uh, this has really been wonderful. I, I, I appreciate it. Well, that's it from our Chanhassen Public Library event with Anthony Mara in Carver County. Catch our next Club Book event with Marissa De Los Santos at 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 31st at the Roseville Library in Ramsey County. Over the last eight years, Marissa De Los Santos has written three consecutive New York Times bestsellers. Her latest novel, The Precious One, is a satisfying novel about friends rediscovering one another and confronting unwelcome truths at their college reunion, according to People Magazine. Meet Marissa De Los Santos, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.